We're turning our attention today to Genesis 37 and to uh, the story of Joseph. But I'll, I'll admit something to you before we get started, just by word of introduction for what we're exploring today. I will admit that I had a bit of a theologically, theological allergic reaction to finding God in dreams, which is our topic for today. Finding God in our wilderness moments, we'll be looking at that in a little while. Finding God in the quiet stillness of our lives. Finding God in community, finding God in the other. I can easily head nod along with those. I got stories, I got illustrations. I've experienced that in my own life. I've experienced that in the lives of others. I know how to tell those stories. But in dreams, that, that has, oh, that left me scratching my head a bit more than just kind of head nodding along. Because it begs the question, can we find God in dreams? And then maybe another way of framing that, should we find God in dreams? And how do we know what's from God? And what might just be a bad dream because we watched a scary movie last night? How do we discern? But as I sat down to the task of study and preparation of sitting with this portion of God's story, but also looking a little bit bigger at to kind of what dreams look like in scripture, I discovered, and you might all already know this, it is really hard to deny that God works through dreams. Because God does so again and again throughout scripture. In story after story, in moment after moment, God speaks words of warning, a lot. God also speaks words of encouragement. God speaks words of guidance in dreams and visions. In both the Old and New Testaments, again and again and again. In Job, one of Job's friends, the wiser younger one who doesn't get rebuked with the other friends, <laughs> He has a moment in the book of Job where he pushes back on Job, who's accusing God of never speaking to those he loves. And then his friends are trying to like defend God by saying, well, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't need to speak to you. You are below God's notice. And Elihu, the wiser, younger friend, pushes back on both. And Elihu says, God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, God speaks. And no one in scripture is more aligned with dreams and dreaming than Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, one of his younger ones. Joseph, whose story that we're gonna walk into a little bit today, is a boy beloved of his father. You may know the story well, it's a Sunday school story. He's a boy sold into slavery by jealous brothers. 
He's a young man wrongfully thrown into prison after being sexually assaulted by a powerful woman. And then he's also the wise interpreter of dreams, who's raised up by Pharaoh to rule over all Egypt in a time of crisis and famine. And all of that began with a dream. Two dreams, actually, as we'll see. And that's where we are going to join Joseph's story, right at the very beginning, in Genesis 37, starting at verse 1. And we're going to start with a story of a young boy dreaming dreams. So let's listen to the voice of God. Genesis 37, starting at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, oh, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then Joseph had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The emotional weight of dreams, whether it's that deep, unnerving fear that we feel that comes with nightmares, or it's the bliss of a really lovely, beautiful dream. 
can feel so real to us. We wake up in a sweat having screamed ourselves awake from a nightmare, barely able to believe that we're actually really, truly safe in our beds. Or there can be those moments when we resist the pull of the morning light because we are in such a beautiful dream and we don't want to let it go. But however real dreams can feel to us upon waking, the sharing of dreams never quite, quite seems to hit the other people the same way. When we sit down to the breakfast table and say, listen to this dream I had, our parent or our spouse or our roommate usually just politely half listens while they slurp their cereal. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Yeah, the sky was green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and you were flying, you were flying like a blue jay. C cool. Oh, but then you were also Vladdy from the Blue Jays. Okay. Dreams sound weird when they're shared most of the time. And they're usually less interesting to others than they are to us, the dreamers. So when Joseph runs up to his brothers on their way out to work after breakfast, yelling, hey, 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 listen to this dream I had, they weren't really inclined to listen, even politely, to their younger brother not just because other people's dreams are far less interesting to others than to the dreamer, but also because, as the story makes clear, there is little brotherly love between Joseph and the brothers who hate him for a variety of reasons. Their father loves him more. Their father not only loves him more, but shows it with special gifts and attention. And because Joseph's a little spoiled brat, who tattled on his older brothers to his father, which is the very first thing we're told about Joseph in this story. And then Joseph seems oblivious to all of this. Seems oblivious, and so he prattles on to his brothers and shares with them his dream. Listen, listen. We were all out in the field gathering, gathering wheat, just like we're doing now, when all of a sudden my bundle stood up taller than all your bundles, and then all your bundles bowed down to my bundle of wheat. Cool, right? Even in the best of sibling relationships, I don't think that would go over well at all. Or unless that's just my, my siblings, my sisters, mine. I see a few head nods of people with siblings going like, no. <laughs> Unlike the dreams later in Joseph's story, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, if you remember that part, or the dreams of Pharaoh, this one doesn't seem to need too much interpretation. Everyone seems to immediately get what it means, much to Joseph's delight and his brother's angst. Joseph, as we meet him, a young man dreaming dreams, is not yet the wise leader, the wise interpreter of dreams that he'll become. Right now, he's a spoiled 17-year-old who is oblivious to his brother's hatred and selfishly wrapped up in dreams of his own grandeur. 
and power. Which means that instead of reading the room the next day, Joseph comes to the breakfast table with even more swagger than before, and he shares yet another dream. This time, not about lowly bundles of wheat, oh no, no. This time we're talking celestial bodies. A star for each brother, sun and moon for his parents, and they're all bowing down to him in the sky. But this time it's different because he shares his dream with his dad. And even Jacob, Israel, initially scoffs at his favorite son's grandiose dream. What? What is this dream you had? Will we really all bow down to the ground to you, my son? Joseph's dreams of his family, for that's what they are, they're, they're pictures of his family, evoke very different reactions in the members of his family. For Joseph, he sees a vision of his own great future of his own great power, of him being the center of the attention. And his chest puffs up a little bit at the thought of that. It's a good dream. I like this dream. For his brothers, they add the spoiled brat's dreams to a growing list of reasons why they hate him. And those of you familiar with the story of Joseph know what kind of fruit that that hatred bears. But Jacob, while initially scoffing at the dream and dismissing it in the presence of others, at the idea that he would bow to his young son however much he loves him, we are told at the end of this part of the story that Jacob kept the dream in mind. Because Jacob was no stranger to God speaking in dreams and visions. Jacob does not completely dismiss the dream and its possible meaning for him, for Joseph, and for his family. And maybe, maybe that is where we find the wisdom for us this morning as we ponder what it can look like to discern God's presence in dreams. To resist the urge to dismiss them outright or to scoff like I was inclined to do walking into this sermon. But to pay attention to them. To keep them in mind like Jacob does to ponder what they could mean and how God might be speaking to us, like Elihu said, when deep sleep falls and we slumber in our beds. A dear friend, Heidi, she's a Christian Reformed pastor elsewhere in Ontario. And she wrote a blog post for the Reformed Journal um, back in July about a dream that she had had recently. Heidi wrote, 
I had a dream. And in the dream, the world was about to end. All that was land was going to become water. And somehow the world was going to turn upside down or tilt, and we were all going to drown. We had five hours left to live. I called my husband and told him to come home, and then I gathered my children around me on our couch. And I remember how I wished in my dream that my arms were a blanket as I tried to hold all three of them completely and at the same time. And I told them the truth. Yes, we are going to die, and it will be scary for a while, but we are all together. We are all going to be together, so it will be okay. Heidi wrote that I was trying to FaceTime my sister in Minnesota to say goodbye when my husband walked in the door, and all I wanted to do was have him in my blanket arms, too. And then the power went out, and I felt the world tilt. And then I woke up. Heidi does confess that she may have been too intensely into Stranger Things at the time of this dream. Had also recently watched the world-ending film, Don't Look Up. But when she woke up, she tentatively shared this deeply disorienting dream with her husband, Tim, at the breakfast table. And because Tim, who is also a pastor, is a lovely human being, who is more insightful and gracious than many of us, he did not do the usual thing of half listening politely to his wife while she shared her dream. He listened. He put down his granola and he listened. He attended to Heidi's dream and he pondered it. And as Heidi shared her dream of worry and water and how spindly her arms felt in her dream, trying to hold them all together at the end of the world, Tim gently asked Heidi, where else in your life are you feeling this way? Where else in your life, Heidi, are you feeling like your horizon is slipping and your world is coming to an end? Where else in your life are you feeling like you did in your dream? Tim invited Heidi to pay attention to her dream. Not to dismiss it or scoff at it, not to divine in it a prophecy for the actual ending of the world, or to figure out the symbolism in some deep, intense dream interpretation kind of way, but to ponder it, to stay with it long enough to wonder what, if anything, might be revealed about her life at the moment. Or as Heidi puts it, 
Tim's question helped me surface the emotion of the dream and then to wonder how God might meet me there. And so waking up from the fog of a deeply disturbing dream, nightmare, really, Heidi had to look around at her own life, pay attention in the light of day to her own fear that she was ignoring, the anxiety she was carrying, of the unknown in their life together as a family. And she had to gather all of that up and hold it with all honesty before God in prayer for discernment, for guidance, for encouragement, for comfort, which she desperately needed at that moment, for wisdom, and for interpretation. Where else in your life are you feeling this way? Years after sharing his own dreams at the breakfast table with his family to catastrophic consequences, Joseph is in prison, and he invites two fellow prisoners to share their dreams with him. Because Joseph, like Tim, noticed that they looked deeply disturbed at breakfast, and so Joseph invites them to share. Joseph says to them, do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And unlike his own experience of sharing dreams with his younger self and his jealous brothers, seeing only what they wanted or feared, their just immediate reaction to that dream, Joseph was more like Jacob this time, listening, paying attention as the two men share their dreams. And Joseph attends to God as the interpreter of dreams rather than himself in his own ego. So you see throughout Joseph's story that from an eager and spoiled young man dreaming dreams of his own great, bright future, God transforms Joseph into a humbled <laughs> and a hard-earned, wise interpreter of others' dreams. One who pays attention to God's guidance, to God's discernment for meaning. And ultimately, when Joseph's dreams are fulfilled because they are, when he comes to that moment where he's the bundle of wheat and his brothers are bowing down, when they are the stars and they are bowing to him, Joseph doesn't see it as a matter of his own greatness, like his young 17-year-old self thought he would. Instead, Joseph stands witnessing to the faithfulness of God at work in his dreams, at work in his life, at work in the life of his family. Not for his own greatness, not for his own ambitions, but because God was setting about rescuing him, rescuing his brothers, even though they hated him, rescuing his family because of God's promises to God's people. So next time you wake up from a weighty dream 
and you stumble to the breakfast table. You pour yourself some cereal and milk. May you not dismiss it out of hand. Maybe hold off a second and don't just scoff at it. Instead, may you ponder the dream, paying attention to where else in your life you might be feeling that way. And then gathering it all up, sharing it with someone else, but also sharing it honestly before God. Asking for guidance, for encouragement, for wisdom, even releasing it if it's not helpful, for comfort, for where you are at and where God might be meeting you there. Because God does speak now one way, now another, though no one perceives it in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God of dreams and visions, our God of wisdom and faithfulness, we come before you holding the story of Joseph, holding our own stories of our dreams, and looking to you, trusting that your spirit is alive and active in our lives, speaking to us, nudging us, guiding us, leading us. Help us to attend to your voice. Help us to not just be sleeping, but to be paying attention to how you show up in our lives. May we be ones who perceive it, who seek it out, and who are shaped and formed more and more in the image of Jesus because of it. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.